Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that you give us. A very rare opportunity in today's world to hear the teaching of the Bible without any kind of restriction or government hindrance or overt persecution as of yet. We're grateful, Lord, for this little window in history and in our culture where we can meet like this. And we pray, Father, that we would seize the moment and take advantage of the season, that we would take heed what and how we hear. Lord, we pray that these truths would penetrate our hearts. Some of us have heard them for so long. We've heard about Jesus and his birth ever since almost we were born. And I pray, Lord, it would never grow old to us. I pray that we would ever wonder at God manifest in the flesh. Lord, I pray that we might fellowship with this Savior. Lord, I pray for this flock. They're your people. And I pray, Lord, that this flock of yours would grow and continue to be strong and reflect the very characteristics and qualities of the Savior that we serve. We ask it in Jesus' name. We went through the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, last week and finished up around verse 55 or 56. Now, the Gospel of Luke is, and we're going slow through the first part, especially because there's some parts of the history of Jesus that aren't recorded quite like they are in Luke. It's a very detailed book. It's the longest account of the virgin birth. And there's a reason probably that Luke gives the longest account of the virgin birth. He was a doctor. Being a doctor and knowing even in his primitive time how the body works and how children are born and conceived, it must have been quite a mind blower to a physician, the whole idea of the virgin birth. And writing a an account to Theophilus, wanting it to be full-orbed and filled in with all of the details, it's only natural that this physician would go into great detail about how the Savior was born, miraculously conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And so he gives a lot of room to it, a few chapters to it. Also, the thing that we have noticed, and you will notice tonight, is just how many songs or hymns of praise, poems of praise, that Luke includes in his gospel that the other writers don't include. Elizabeth, when she sees Mary coming over to her house, she breaks forth in a song of praise. Mary does the same thing, and we ended with that last time. Simeon, Zacharias, the angels, all of these songs are unique to the Gospel of Luke. Songs of praise. One of the things that marks a Christian is joy. I can't imagine a songless Christian. It's hard for me to imagine somebody who's in love with God who doesn't sing, doesn't want to open his mouth and raise his or her voice and praise to God. It seems so natural with what God has done for us and in us. It would only be the natural response to want to sing to him to give him glory. And I'm glad that Luke records the various personalities and as they were filled with the Spirit and they sang these songs, which really were prophecies. Now, the Magnificat, which we covered last week, remember when she spoke these words, 
She was probably between 13 and 16 years of age. And we recalled last time that here's this young Jewish girl able to quote so many promises and bring in so many texts of the Old Testament into her song. She really knew her Bible. And it was a song of thanksgiving, a song of worship and praise. And again, I think that one of the things that ought to mark a Christian is thanksgiving. So often our prayer life is marked by storming the gates of heaven with our needs. And you know what? God loves to hear about your needs. I want to set your mind at rest in case you think that it's selfish for you to pray about a need or a want that you have. It's not. You have a heavenly Father who loves to hear it. I love to hear what my son wants. He doesn't always get it, but I love to hear about it. I delight in him. I don't grow old of him or tired of hearing him. But how wonderful it is when he says, Dad, thank you. You're the best dad. I love you, Dad. Nothing like that melts my heart. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, Paul said, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will be the umpire in your heart, literally. So the balance of prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Not just prayer and supplication. Mix it with thanksgiving. Don't be anxious. One of the reasons I think people are so anxious is they have failed to stop and take inventory of their blessings and be thankful for what God has given them. Oh, but you know how bad it is in my life. could be worse. You could be living in another country without a fraction of the blessings you have. Have you ever thought of that? Well, no, because it could be better. Listen, that's just your American conditioning. That's not a biblical worldview. You're a victim of all those commercials that tell you life could be better if you had that product. So it's time to look at some of those commercials when they come on television with all of those promises and talk back to them. Ever tried that? It's a lot of fun. Those commercials come on and say, you would be so fulfilled and so happy if you only had this. Just talk back. Say, that's bogus. I don't buy it. Because all of those messages come inside your brain and go into your heart, and you see so many people lapping up after those things that never can fulfill. My soul doth magnify the Lord, Mary said. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. And it's a beautiful hymn of praise and thanksgiving. There's an old preacher named Alexander White, W-H-Y-T-E. Alexander White, besides being a great man of God, was famous for his outlook of joy and thanksgiving. He would always thank God for something. Even when times were horrible in his own personal life, he would be thankful. At one time, when people knew that he was going through a personal tragedy and his life wasn't all that it could be. When he went into the pulpit, some of his members said, yeah, I wonder what he's going to be able to thank God for today. And kind of waiting for him to not do it. He got up into the pulpit and said, oh, God, I thank you that it's not always like this. <laughs> That's something. 
In verse 56, we read, Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, her older cousin, for three months and returned to her house. Now, Elizabeth's full-time, now remember the description of Elizabeth and her husband, well-stricken in years. These were some old folks who really were the talk of their town because she's pregnant. At a little suburb down around southern Jerusalem, this older woman is really showing now. The time is about ready to be delivered. The time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her son. When all her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now, the birth of a child was a great occasion in Israel. When a child was born, friends would automatically get out of their houses and come down the street and congregate at the house where the baby was born. Musicians would come. Some of them were professional musicians. They would come and make melody and fill the streets with music. Now, in those days, and this is not by God's design, it's part of the culture. It's an unfortunate side effect of this culture. Even though God created men and women to be equal in His sight. In the Semitic cultures, and Israel was a Semitic culture, If a boy was born, the musicians would carry on for days. And it would be a huge hullabaloo. If it was a girl, the musicians wouldn't even play. They would take their instruments, hang their heads, and go back home. Now, I'm just a Bible teacher. I'm just, I'm not telling you the way it ought to be. I'm telling you the way it was. That's the way they did things in that part of the world at that time. And in some parts of the world, presently, in some cultures. The Muslim culture is very similar to that still. So Elizabeth had a double joy in her house. First of all, she was barren all of her life, couldn't conceive. Now she's old. She has a child, and it's a son. There's rejoicing in the house of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Double joy. And everybody rejoiced with her. Now so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. On the eighth day, the son was brought and circumcised by the rabbi. Also the eighth day was the day when the name had to be picked if it was a boy. Now, if it was a girl, you had 30 days to choose it. But by the eighth day, because it was the day of circumcision, and every male child had to bear the mark of the covenant relationship according to the law. So by the eighth day, they had to pick the name. Now, everybody thought that they're going to name him after his dad, Zachariah. It would be Zach Jr. That's what everybody expected. Oh, look at that beautiful little boy, Zach. Zacharias. God remembers. That's what the name means. And his mother answered and said, No. I like Elizabeth. She just speaks right up. She's not afraid. She just says, No. He shall be called John. Yahweh is gracious, his name means. They said to her, There's no one among your relatives who is called by that name. 
So they made signs to his father. Now that's interesting. Remember his father, Zacharias, was of the uh, course of Abijah, a member of the Levites. And he served his course in the temple and he was burning incense one day, thrilled just to be in the temple. A responsibility that not everyone who is a priest gets. So here he's there burning incense in front of that veil that separates the Holy of Holies from the uh, holy place. He's in the holy place. And as he's burning incense, on the right-hand side of the altar, the angel appears to him. It says, you're going to have a son. He goes, oh, I don't know if I can believe you. How can I trust you? He said, well, I'll tell you what. You know, I mean, first of all, if I were an angel, I'd say, Zacharias, when was the last time you saw an angel? I mean, this is, this is a first. This should be a sign, right? But because you didn't believe it, you're not going to be able to speak. So he comes out of the temple, had this tremendous revelation. After 400 silent years, God finally speaks by the voice of an angel, and he can't tell anyone. He can't speak. So he's giving signs. Now they're signing to him, which indicates he was deaf as well as dumb. As well as not being able to speak, he was unable to hear because they had to sign to him rather than speak to him. So they made signs to his fathers what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. You know, so much had been bottled up for nine months not being able to speak, and then suddenly the mouth is open, and he just went for it. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and these sayings were discussed throughout all of the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child this would be? And the hand of the Lord was upon him. What kind of a child is this son of Zacharias and Elizabeth going to be? Well, first of all, he's going to be great. In fact, Jesus said there's no greater person born among women than John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be the prediction of Malachi, the last chapter. The voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the ways of the Lord. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. You should know that at this time in history, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the expectation that the Messiah would come had been heightened among the Jews, especially in the land of Israel. There was the idea among many of the devout Jews that soon, in their lifetime, the Messiah would show up probably because the Romans had so oppressed and bludgeoned the people into submission that they longed for the Deliverer to come. Close to the heart of Judaism is the coming of the Messiah. And Josephus even writes about it in his book, The Wars of the Jews. The people were waiting. John the Baptist was that forerunner to usher him in. Now, Zacharias, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, 
who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. Now remember, or here I'm doing it. The name Zacharias means God remembers. And I think this is a play on words of his name. His name means God remembers. And so he says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Verse 73, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. The name Elizabeth means his oath. So here's a play on words in this prophecy of the name of Zacharias and the name of Elizabeth. God has promised, God has made an oath, God has remembered, and we have a son. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. Now, looking at that little baby, little John. You will be called prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts until the day of his manifestation to Israel. Now there's a reference here to the day spring. In other words, Jesus' coming is like daybreak, it's like sunrise. Now it implies that the world had been in darkness. And you're going to see this reference coming up a couple times in the next chapter. The world is dark, and the light has shone upon it through the coming of Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist is born, and now we get to the famous, the most famous birth of all history, the birth of Jesus Christ. And it came to pass in those days. What kind of days were they? Those days were the days, first of all, of a common language. There had really never been a time in the ancient world quite like the days of Jesus Christ. The common language was the Greek language, the most comprehensive and exact of all human languages to this day. Very thorough. Alexander the Great had a dream. His dream was to put pockets of Greek culture throughout the entire world. A young 20-year-old, Alexander the Great, who conquered the entire known world before he was 31 years of age. And then he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. He wanted to Hellenize, make the entire world Greek, and to impose a language upon it. And he pretty much succeeded. Now, language can really be a barrier. I've been in India where you have hundreds of dialects, not just another language, hundreds of dialects. And I remember speaking to a pastor's conferences where I'd get up and I'd share something in English. Then I'd have next to me a translator who would listen to what I said in English and translate it into um, Tamil, one of the languages of South India. And then another translator would be next to him who would hear it and translate what he just said in Tamil and he translated into Hindi. 
And then next to him would be another translator who would translate what he said in Hindi into the Malayalam dialect. And there have been times where I have spoken with three, sometimes four, translators. I tell you, it gets crazy communicating like that. But language can be such a barrier. We're separated when we can't understand by communication. Now at that time, most all of the world understood as a common language Greek. Sort of like French was the international language at one time in the world, and now English is pretty much the international language. If you know English, you can pretty much get by in most places of the world. If you knew Greek, you could get by in those days. So the communication could travel quite easily from one border to another, which made the spread of the gospel perfect. In those days, it was also the days of what was called by the Romans the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Julius Caesar had passed away. His adopted son, Octavianus, called here Caesar Augustus, imposed what was called the Pax Romana. What he did is he took the Roman Republic, which was a loose set of areas governed by a pack of generals, and brought it into an empire with centralized government. And he imposed the Pax Romana, centralized Roman peace. There had not been a war for some 13 years throughout the known world, at least where Rome ruled. Things were pretty much quiet. It was a time when the Romans built roads, and some of those roads are still in existence today. I wish this city could view how to build a road that would last longer than nine, ten months, where you lay cable and a pipe, and then, oh, you know, we've got to dig it up again because now the funding came in for this. I won't get on that. But they didn't have orange barrels in the Roman times. They built roads, and I could take you to places in Israel where you can look down and see a Roman road built 2,000 years ago, and you can see it go all the way down. The road to Emmaus, many parts of it from Jerusalem to Emmaus, are still intact. Fabulous. Now that made not only language easy, but people could travel from border to border very peacefully. Roman peace was ensured. It came to pass in those days, what days? Days where things were perfectly set up by God. You know, it says, I think the best way to look at it is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It was a perfect setup. It was the fullness of time. The world was ready. The expectation was heightened in Israel. The Roman peace was enforced, and you have to understand that it was enforced. You might say, oh, what a wonderful time for Jesus to be born when the world was at peace. But the world was at peace because Israel, along with some of the other nations, had been bludgeoned into submission. You make one step, and they'll beat you down and kill the people of your country. That's how the peace ruled in the Pax Romana. So yeah, there was peace in the world, but it's a wicked kind of a peace when people are bludgeoned into submission. And Israel was very, very unstable at that point. It was the fullness of time. So it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Again, his original name was Octavianus. He was the adopted son, really, of Julius Caesar. That all the world should be registered. 
The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. How did he get the name Augustus? Augustus means one who rules absolutely. Originally, the term means Caesar of the gods. In 27 B.C., as the Roman Senate tried to decide on a name to give this incredible ruler, they thought of several names, we'll call you king. He said, no, it's not good enough. It implies that I have an end to my reign. I have a limited reign. I have a localized reign. They came up with several names, so finally they said, we'll call you Caesar Augustus. That's a title. His name again was Octavianus. Caesar Augustus was literally translated the divine Caesar. Caesar of the gods because he succeeded from taking the Roman Republic to the Roman Empire. He goes, I like that. It's got a ring to it. Caesar of the gods, the divine one. I like that. Yeah, call me that. And at that time, Caesar worship was imposed so that as the Roman government went on through the years, every Roman citizen had to take a pinch of incense once a year before a bust of Caesar in their local municipality put that pinch of incense on a flame before that bust and say, Caesar Curia, Caesar is my Lord, which got Christians into trouble because they refused to do it. They would say, Christos Curias, Christ is Lord. They fought against the Roman government. This is where it all began. Caesar Augustus, well, let's be honest, he was filled with pride to accept this kind of a name. Caesar Augustus attempted worldwide hegemony, that is, absolute power under one ruler of the known world, and he came very close to doing it. I mean, if you can be one human being in Rome, and you can lift your scepter and say, let all the world be taxed, and you can move entire masses of people groups from one end of the empire to the other, that's pretty august power. That's pretty amazing power. But the story goes on. He's really a pawn. He's really a tiny little speck of dust who thinks he's something great. It says the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Luke is very, very detailed in his dating processes. So all went to be registered, everyone to his city. Now the purpose of the tax was twofold. The purpose of the census was A, to tax people. B, to find out how many males were eligible for the military, which was compulsory in the Roman government, except for one people group. Who were they? The Jews. The Jews, because of their fierce unwillingness to bow to the Roman system, were exempt from Roman military. They could join if they wanted to, but they didn't have to. So the purpose was to find out who could join the military and tax people. Now in Israel, it was simply to tax people. And there were several taxes. I know you think you got it bad living in the United States. Oh, it's so horrible, the tax rate and the interest rate. And Listen, you've got it made compared to ancient times. First of all, they had the poll tax. It was the flat tax to breathe air, to exist. If you were 14 years old to 75 years old, you paid a a flat percentage to exist on planet Earth. 
and to enjoy the air of the Roman Empire. Then on top of that, you had the income tax. Again, a flat rate that was given to the Roman government. You had road taxes, bridge taxes, cart taxes, fish taxes. This is all part of the Pax Romana. Okay, you want peace, you want roads, you want a system, you've got to pay for it. And the oppression in Israel was great, as they had things exacted from them by tax collectors. It also meant that whatever city you lived in, you had to find out where your lineage was, your forefathers, what tribe you were from, what city you came from ancestrally, and you had to uproot and you had to move. And Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Now let's look at this whole taxation from a divine standpoint. There was a prophet named Micah who gave an interesting prediction of where the Messiah was to be born. It's found in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is to be the ruler of my people Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, even from everlasting. Now all the Jews knew that the Messiah, because of that verse, was to be born in Bethlehem. Even those guys who worked for King Herod. The Jewish rabbis, when Herod said, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? You guys know? They said, yeah, and they quoted Micah 5 too. He has to be born in Bethlehem. That's why he said, kill all the kids in Bethlehem from a certain age under. Now, God has a problem. The one who is going to bring forth the Messiah doesn't even live close to Bethlehem. She lives 80 miles away, up in the hills of Galilee. The backwaters of Nazareth. God needs to get Mary and Joseph with child down to Bethlehem. How does he do it? Move this little pawn called Caesar Augustus in Rome to say, let all the world be taxed. Great. He wasn't this great August power. He was simply a pawn fulfilling the will of God. God needed to get the Messiah the King of kings and Lord of lords, to be born in Bethlehem as predicted by the prophets. So he uses that little pawn, that little speck of dust over in Rome who thinks he's something great, lifts his scepter and commands the world to be taxed. They go to Bethlehem. Jesus is born. How ironic. Here's this little mealy despot. I'm August. I'm of the gods. I will achieve hegemony and be in charge of the world. And here you have a little poor what they would consider an insignificant peasant child, Jesus Christ, who is to be born in Bethlehem, who will one day achieve true worldwide hegemony. He'll be in charge of all of the world. But at this point, God uses him. A taxation is in view here, and they make it all the way from Nazareth. Now imagine traveling 80 miles with your wife, pregnant. It's not easy to travel, as you know, women, when you're pregnant on an airplane or a bus or even a car sometimes. But imagine in those days traveling 80 miles. That's tough. To be registered with Mary, 
his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, there were two Bethlehems in those days. The prophecy of Micah said, And you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that is the southern Bethlehem. In the book of Joshua, when they conquer the land, there's another Bethlehem up north in the land of Zebulun. And so to distinguish between the south and the north, Ephrathah, or the southern one of Judah, was delineated. By the way, Bethlehem is a town that means the house of bread. Bet, house, lechem, bread. Bet lechem is how it's pronounced in Hebrew. The house of bread. Because so much of the fields of wheat were around the area of Bethlehem. That's where Boaz had all of his fields. That's where Ruth was commanded to glean by her mother-in-law, Naomi. The house of bread. How fitting that the bread of life was born in the city of David, the house of bread. That whoever would partake of him would never, ever hunger again. And so, verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, I've got to tell you, my opinion is that we have totally ruined the Christmas story. I don't think we really have a clue. We have a picture in our mind or from the Christmas cards or from the goofy little books that come out of what it was all about. First of all, the inn. The inns in those days were anything but a holiday. They were rough places. There was not room service. There were not turned-down beds, restrooms with running water. The inn was simply an enclosure of several rooms that emptied into an outer enclosure where the animals were kept. They were kept in common in the center. They were tied to a post. The innkeeper was responsible for giving fodder, food, to the animals. And that's all and to provide some kind of fire for whoever was staying in that little stall, that little room. So you'd go there, you had to bring your own food, you had to sleep on whatever you brought, your own mat, your own bed, cloth. You'd spread out, he'd provide the fire, he'd provide food for your animals and keep them in the center enclosure, and so you were in a room that was an open door facing a courtyard. That was the inn. It was called the Khan, K-A-H-N. Now, it is supposed by some then that Jesus was born out in the outer enclosure. Since there was no room in the inn, in the rooms themselves, he was born in that outer enclosure where the animals are kept. Probably Jesus was born in a cave. There wasn't any kind of a wooden fenced area like we think of as, you know, or, you know, it's got a pitched roof on it like the manger scenes we have uh, where Jesus is in the center, you know, and there's little... Uh, uh, crossbars of wood and a little patch of hay. A manger was made out of stone. A couple feet high, about three feet long, about 18 inches wide, about six inches deep, carved out of stone, and it was the feeding trough of the animals. And that's where Jesus was born. Whether he was born in the outer enclosure or in a cave where the animals were kept in that stone manger, that's where Jesus was born. Now it says that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths. As soon as a child was born, he was cleansed and rubbed down with salt. That's the way they did it. Kill bacteria. Then you take this swaddling cloth, which was simply a square piece of cloth 
with a long string or wrap of about two inches wide attached from the center and moved out diagonally. The baby was placed in this cloth and the outer cloth was wrapped around the baby and then that long strip was entwined over to keep the baby snug and warm after the delivery. He laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now you can imagine, people are moving everywhere. They're going to their place of origin. It's high season for hotels. The inns are packed. People are moving from one part of Israel or the Roman Empire to the other. It's hard to get a room. Now, what happened to Jesus, what happened to his mother, I think is sort of indicative of what would happen in his future. There really was never room found for Jesus. He came into his own. His own received him not. He was in the world. The world was made by him. The world rejected him. There was only really one place found for Jesus Christ. There was room for him on a cross. That's why he came. But that's what the world did to him and thought of him by and large. And today God still is looking to dwell within hearts of people. And people have all sorts of excuses. I'm, I'm too young to give my life to Jesus. I mean, I've got a lot of fun to have first. Maybe when I'm a little more settled, when I'm well stricken in years, like you, Skip, then... I'll give my life to the Lord. And so you hit your 30s and your 40s, and you have more excuses. Well, I'm too busy now. I mean, I've got kids of my own to raise, and I've got a career, and I've got plans to make. I just don't have time. I'll put it off till later on. I'll get a little bit older. I'll settle down, slow down. In my retirement years, I'll give my life to Jesus. You get into your retirement years, you become a little more hardened in your ways and in your thought processes doesn't matter to you anymore. There's a lot of people who, if you were honest, you would just say, I don't have room for them in my inn. I don't want them. Now, it's funny how even Christians can make excuses. I don't have enough time to read my Bible. I like to read my Bible. I like to pray. I know it's important, but I just don't have time. Really? Do you have time to eat? Of course you have to eat. Do you have time to watch TV? Of course, got to keep up with the news. If I know what's going on, be a responsible citizen. David said, I have esteemed the words of thy mouth more than my necessary food. I think if you're honest, you just say, I don't have room for them. There was no room in the end. Is there room in your life for them? Then you'll make time for them. You can make room for them. Now there were, in the same country, shepherds, living out in the fields. They were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Because of this, probably Jesus, almost certainly, let me rephrase that, certainly Jesus was not born December 25th. It is a tradition that has been passed from later times. We don't know exactly when Jesus was born. The dead of winter is the highest of all times for it to be unlikely. Shepherds, after mid-October, never kept their flocks out in the fields at night. They always brought them in for the wintertime and kept them in inner enclosures within or close to the city itself, never out in the fields. So probably it was sometime other than 
what normally we say is around December 25th. But you know what? Who cares when he was born? You know, I've read books on this and people argue it doesn't matter when he was born. You know what matters? Why he was born. Why he came to this earth to be the Savior, to die for the sins of the world. That's really the issue, isn't it? Those sweet little hands lying in the manger would one day have Roman spikes driven through them. Those pink, soft little feet, baby's feet, that would walk the dusty roads of Galilee would one day be put upon a Roman cross. That cute little head would one day wear a crown of thorns. He came for that purpose, to die for our sins. The fact that he came and the reason why he came is really the issue here. Now these shepherds were living out in the fields. They were keeping their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Something else about these shepherds. Most scholars believe that these are special shepherds. They're not just a bunch of guys in their own business. That they were temple shepherds. You see, every morning and every evening in Jerusalem, an unblemished male lamb was slaughtered and sacrificed on that outward altar in the court of the Gentiles. Because of the high demand for the number of sheep for the sacrifices and because of the stringent regulations placed upon what kind of sheep without blemish, the temple... The priests, the Levites, had their own private flocks of sheep that were raised only for the sacrifice of the temple. And, interestingly enough, the flocks of temple sheep were kept around the vicinity of Bethlehem, which is only five miles from Jerusalem. You can see it from Jerusalem. If you have a hotel that is a high-rise, you can look right over and see Bethlehem in the distance. How fitting then, is it not, that these shepherds who are raising these lambs to be sacrificed for the sins of Israel would be the ones to first hear the announcement that the Lamb of God was born who takes away the sins of the world. Now it's probably late at night or early morning. The angel sees what is happening. This baby is born. That's the greatest news in the world. you got to tell somebody. You can't keep that a secret. This little baby will change the world and impact society more than any other child who's ever been born. Men and women will date their calendars from his birth. Men and women will all stand before that little baby one day to be judged for all of eternity. That's quite a baby. The angel comes. Who's the angel? doesn't say, my opinion, it's Gabriel. I believe that strongly. Gabriel was the one that appeared to Daniel and gave Daniel the time frame of the coming of the Messiah. Gabriel stands and is at the right hand of the altar of incense and says, Zacharias, your wife's going to have a kid. You better rejoice. It's Gabriel who comes to Mary and says, you will birth the Son of God. I think Gabriel comes and tells the shepherds, now again, it's, not, it's late at night. The candles have blown out in Bethlehem. Everybody's asleep. You've got to tell somebody. And so the search. Who can I tell? Oh, there's a fire over there on the hillside. A bunch of shepherds. Those are the temple shepherds. Let's go tell them. 
Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. First of all, good tidings. The gospel means good news. Secondly, it's not for a few people. It's for all people. It's not an Anglo-Saxon Western religion. It's not one of many roads that lead to God. It is good news for everyone of all times. A Savior is born in the city of David, who is Christ. He is the Lord. And you will find, this will be a sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now, how many kids are born in feeding troughs? It's going to be quite easy to find this child in Bethlehem. He's lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, and now comes the famous Gloria in excelsis Deo, which is the Latin Vulgate for the first phrase, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now remember our, when John the Baptist was born, we mentioned that it was a custom that musicians come and lead the rejoicing, the celebration. A child has been born, especially a boy. Now Jesus' birth, he's born out where the animals are kept. There's no minstrels, earthly minstrels, to sing songs, to celebrate, to let the community know. So God will take care of the music free of charge. The angels will come out. What a band it must have been. It must have sounded great as the angels sing and rejoice. The Messiah has now been born. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, think about that little phrase. Glory to God in the highest. Okay, I can buy that. On earth, peace. Peace. Goodwill toward men. Hello, angels. What newspaper have you been reading lately? Are you mocking us, angel of God? Are you taunting us? Let me ask you. As you look around your world, as you look around your world from that time to this time, you see peace and goodwill toward men? No, I, see, I don't see it. I see a lot of war, famine, destruction. What is this angel saying? The original language, or if you have another translation, it spells it out. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward men of goodwill. Or... Peace toward men approved by God would be the best translation. Where is peace? It's not worldwide. Everybody's just getting together. One planet, one people, please. It will never happen. This side of the coming of Christ. It will never happen. Peace, true peace, comes in the hearts of those who receive that little baby as the Lord of their life into their hearts. Who recognize this is God's Son. This is the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. There is no peace, Isaiah 48 says, to the wicked. Peace comes within the heart of people who receives God's provision for their sins. Most of you know Romans chapter 5. 
begins with that declaration of peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not primarily a feeling of peace. It's a declaration of peace. You see, I know a lot of heathens who have deluded themselves and talked themselves into a realm of thinking. Where they say, hey, man, I'm fine. I'm peaceful. Life is hunky-dory. I don't need God. That's a delusion. They might feel peaceful or tranquil temporarily, but they are at war with God. And on the other hand, I've known Christians that feel full of anxiety and all sorts of emotions, feel anything but peaceful, but they are at peace with God. They're not at war with God. The war is over at the cross. It's not a feeling necessarily, though Christians are to feel the peace of God. But peace with God is the declaration that because you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this little baby who would be born to be the Savior of the world, you've placed your faith in Him, God declares you righteous. God declares that you are at peace with Him. You're not at war with Him any longer. He doesn't hold anything against you. Now, once you believe that and realize that, those feelings of peace follow. When you believe God has nothing against you, God isn't out to get you. He's out to love you, to save you. He has your best interests at heart. The more you realize that and believe that and appropriate that by faith, the more feelings of peace you have. But you might be an unbeliever tonight and you're hearing this message. You go, oh, I'm fine. I'm peaceful. You're living a delusion. Let's say you were a criminal and you committed a crime against the United States government. You knew that you were about to get caught. They had the goods on you. FBI, CIA found out all about you. And just before they busted the case wide open, you got in a jet and made it down to Argentina. There you are. You're on another border. You're protected by that government. You have a nice little hideaway overlooking the beach. The waves are great. The water's perfect. The air is warm, and you feel so good. You're a criminal, but you feel good. You have feelings of tranquility in your foreign hideaway. Yet, you are at war with the United States government. How do I know? Well, cross back over the border. Let them see your mugshot and your face at the airport. And they'll give a little phone call and the security will come and pick you up. Because you're still at war with the government. When you come into a relationship with God through His Son, God declares you righteous. You're at peace with God. And that is the peace that is promised here. Peace toward men approved by God or men of goodwill. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. There was never a night again for those shepherds like that night. When that shepherd kissed his wife on the cheek, said, Honey, have a good sleep. I'm going to be out in the field. See you in the morning. He probably thought, uh, You know, another boring night with those sheep. Another smelly night with those sheep. I hate this job. Took his lunch sack with his bagel and locks and Went out to the fields of Bethlehem. What a story they had when they came home to their wives the next day. 
the Lamb of God has been born. And they came with haste. That means they were booking it in a hurry. And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning the child. Here's the first evangelist. Shepherds, the common folk. Which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now, three ceremonies that are Jewish ceremonies that by now you know about because you have been through Leviticus with us. And you'll see how they fit in here to the life of Jesus Christ. First of all, circumcision. When the eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Yeshua. Jesus is the anglicized form of the Greek word. The Hebrew word is Yeshua. We know it in the Old Testament as Joshua or Jehoshua. The Lord is salvation. That's what his name meant. He shall call his name Jesus, the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. His name is called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now in the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were completed. Remember that when a child was born, the woman was unclean ceremonially, not morally, ceremonially for a period of time, at least 30 days. She could do household chores. She could walk around the neighborhood. She could do everything, go shopping. She couldn't go to the tabernacle or the temple. She couldn't take place in some of this, uh, her, her part in some of the synagogue services. She was ceremonially unclean. At the end of that, she would bring an offering and come before the uh, priest and make an offering to end her uncleanness. It was a sin offering. And then she could get on with things. So the days have been completed. They brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is the third ritual. That's the redemption of the firstborn. Remember, I think it was a few weeks ago we read about that. That every firstborn child or every firstborn animal belongs to God. And you have to redeem it. And you would appear inside the temple and you'd give five shekels to the priest, sort of buying that child back. God gave life. This is my child. I've dedicated him to God. Now to redeem him, I have to give five shekels to the temple and present him to God. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now that's kind of interesting because if you read the whole text, you're supposed to bring a lamb. You come to the temple, you buy a lamb or you raise a lamb without blemish, and the lamb is the sacrifice for the child. Now that could get quite expensive. And so God made a provision. If you were very poor, you could substitute the lamb with turtle doves. This indicates that Mary and Joseph were very poor. Jesus was raised in a poor home, a common home. This is a young couple. They haven't even gotten off the ground in life yet. They haven't had enough time to buy a house or save up for anything. Very, very young, very poor. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Hearing. That's what Simeon means. 
And his name, uh, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. That term means the Messiah. The consolation of Israel was the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and he blessed God. Now, this guy, I I can't wait to meet some of the people in the Bible. I can't wait to meet this guy. Sensitive to the movings of the Holy Spirit. Somehow, it was revealed. He is going to see the Messiah. And so I can picture him. He goes into the temple every day. He just kind of hangs. Just kind of listens to the Lord. Looks around. It's a big place. 37 acres. Just kind of strolls through it. Looking for new babies, children. Listening to people. Sees a baby. Thinks, Lord, is this the one? Sees a teacher giving the law. He goes, I wonder who that is. Is this your Messiah? And he's in the temple one day. And and a peasant couple comes in with a little baby, eight days old. And the Spirit of God speaks to his heart. That is the one. I'm sure he got all excited. And he comes up to Mary and Joseph and he says, Excuse me, uh, my name is Simeon. Do you mind if I held your baby? Well, I mean, he's an old guy. You can't say no. You know, a total stranger, you think, I'm not going to let you hold my baby. This guy's in the temple. He's old. Indulge him. Little did they know that he was going to break forth in this wonderful psalm of praise. This is the consolation of Israel. Remember I said that the expectation of the Jews was heightened at this time? There was a prediction that some of the Jews during this period were certain had not been fulfilled and that God had broken his promise. It's in um, Genesis chapter 49. It's the prophecy concerning Judah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem. The prophecy says in Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh, Shiloh comes. And the expectation of all people shall be to him. Now, the sages, the rabbis, throughout history, had always interpreted that as the coming of the Messiah. Shiloh was a name for this Messiah. And the promise was is that the lawgiver will not depart from Judah, the scepter, until Shiloh comes, the Messiah comes. When the Romans took away the southern kingdom's right to govern itself, especially to execute with capital punishment crimes against Judaism. They took away their right. Only Rome now has the imperial right. We're in charge. The scepter was taken away from Judah. And the Jews always expected, if that happens, the Messiah will come and redeem us. It had been a few years now. Rome has been in charge. The scepter had departed from Judah. There was no sovereign rule of the Jews anymore concerning their religion. The Romans had taken it over. Josephus tells us that when this happened, when the Romans took over and imposed these kinds of things, 
a great group of priests and religious leaders put sackcloth on their body, ashes on their heads, and formed a procession and marched around the walls of Jerusalem saying, God has forsaken his people. He's broken his promises. We've sinned. The scepter has departed from Judah. And the Messiah has not come. Little did they know that Shiloh was in their midst. A baby had been born. The scepter had departed. But Simeon knew. He sees that baby and God says, that's the one. The prediction had been made and fulfilled. Now listen to it. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen, what, a baby? Lord, my eyes have seen a neat little kid. Oh, he's so cute. Notice what he calls this little baby. My eyes have seen your soterion salvation. This baby is the salvation of the world, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. Again, the reference to not just a few, not, a, not just the Jewish people, all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Again, the mention of light. This baby is going to be a light to the Gentiles, to the world. What does light imply? Whenever you have light, you have to have darkness. And the purpose of light is to dispel darkness and show people the way out of darkness. This kid's going to be the light of the world. Jesus said he was. It implies that the world was in darkness. Now, let's say you overheard Simeon that day. You're sitting in the background of the temple. You're hanging out. It's after lunch. Couple comes in. This guy gets all excited. Oh, I can now die in peace. This is God's salvation. A light to the Gentiles. You'd say, what do you mean a light to the Gentiles? I could walk over to Herod's palace right over here and say, excuse me, Herod. Is it true that the Gentiles are in darkness? What do you mean in darkness? The Gentile world is the Roman world. We've brought light to this world. The Pax Romana. Hmm, thanks. And then let's say you walked over to the houses of the Greek philosophers. Excuse me, great Greek philosophers, is the Gentile world, of which you're a part of, in darkness? How could you say that? We've brought enlightenment. We have Socrates, Plato, Eridus, Epimenides. We have all these great Greek enlightened philosophers. If you ask people today, is the world in darkness? They'd say, what, are you a dumb? Haven't you heard of the Enlightenment, the Age of Enlightenment, the Renaissance? And look at our modern generation. We've got computers and technology and medical advancements. We're an enlightened age. Why, we now know that God didn't make the world. Oh, I guess the world is in darkness. Filled with darkness. So this little baby would be the light to lead men out of darkness and into God's light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things that were spoken of him. Yeah, they didn't expect this. This is the day of circumcision, or the day of dedication, excuse me, 31 days after. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against, yes, a sword, will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
That's a prophecy that Mary would stand at the cross of Jesus Christ and her heart would be pierced as she saw her son die and be jeered. The Jewish expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he will bring in the kingdom. Oh, the heartbreak of his followers, but especially his mother, as her son died on that cross. And she didn't know what that meant. She's just, she has a file that says, wait for further information. She pondered these things and kept them in her heart. She was taken off guard when Simeon said, this is God's salvation, a light to the Gentiles, and the sword is going to pierce your heart. Now, Jesus is to be the one that's responsible for the fall and the rising of many. Which is it? Fall or rising? Well, it depends on who you are. The Bible says that he's the saver of life to some and the saver of death to others. If you reject Jesus Christ, he is a sign of your fall eternally. If you embrace this little child, the Savior, the Soterion of the world, it's a sign of your rising. All depends on who you are, if you accept or reject him. You see, no one has influenced the world like Jesus. Think of that little baby being born. You'll date your calendars by him, you'll sign your checks, and you'll write... March whatever, 1995, or whatever year it is when you write it. And your life revolves in dating around the birth of that child. You will stand before Jesus Christ as he judges the earth. You will rise or fall. The choice is up to you. Father, we thank you for the time that we have spent together as your flock so thankful, Lord, that we have an opportunity to go through this familiar story in the writing of Dr. Luke, who in such a detailed manner gives to us the prophecies concerning his coming and then shows us in graphic detail the way he came into this world, 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 the way